Rebecca, I can see the top of your um, bottle, and I know that bottle well because that is a favorite in my household. The Lagavulin 16? Yes, that is. My husband goes through well, quite a bit of that. <laughs> your household your household has good taste. <laughs> it's it's my favorite, too. It's my personal fave. I probably should be drinking that in the form of a penicillin, but I'm going to go with wine. <laughs> I always tell I always tell my husband that when I'm sick and I'm like, I'm going to have a drink. And he's like, you shouldn't be drinking. You're sick. I'm like, no, it kills the germs, right? 100%. Makes you better. It does. And what did they use back in the day before we had all of the pharmaceuticals? Exactly. And, and healthcare was so good back then. Mm-hmm. So obviously they were on pure <laughs> science. <laughs> Hi, I'm Maya Garantz. And I'm Rebecca Cohen. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. In this episode, we're going to ruin Taylor Swift again. Again. (laughs) (laughs) But this time, the Swifties are striking back. That's right. We have a very special guest who is going to give a counterpoint, a different point of view on this topic. Um, so Jenna Parrott, welcome. Um, why don't you first tell us a little bit about yourself? I am a legal operations person uh, by day and a Taylor Swift fan, um, always have been for years. <laughs> um, and myself and my dog and husband, we live in San Diego, California. Um, so I am always happy to offer my two cents as someone who knows Taylor's catalog very well um, and am happy to talk Uh, anything Taylor Swift and offer my opinion or, you know, whatever I can. Wonderful. Well, we are going to get into that and I am very looking forward to that. But as a tradition, before we do get into our main topic, we need to check in and see how everyone's doing and what they're drinking. Jenna, you are our guest. You go first. Tell us how you're doing this lovely afternoon and what you're drinking. I am doing relatively well, all things considered. I am getting over the tail end of a flu. That's why my voice is a little off the radar today. Um, I could not find a good Sancerre at the store um, that really fit my attitude today, um, just because I was a little bit more gloomy and Sancerre's for more bright days. Sancerre is actually Taylor's favorite wine. Um, So I went with a Rioja. And so that is what I'm drinking today. I'm sure Taylor would approve. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Maya, how are you doing? I'm uh, I'm great, and I just ran to get some booze, and uh, I'm drinking some Fortaleza with some Meyer lemon over ice, and you know keeping it basic. I'm doing all right. We are on the second attempt of having a cat, and I also believe this this will not work out. We found somebody who had was who was fostering a blue Russian which are apparently the most hypoallergenic of cats. And yes, to let our listeners know, I don't think you talked about the first cat on the oh, show, did you? I it's didn't. Maya and her family fostered a cat briefly, um, knowing that your son is allergic, right? And maybe my daughter too is what oh. we're learning. Oh. oh, yeah. And at first it was a tortie and she was unbelievably the most gorgeous cat I've ever seen, but also was very stinky and very <laughs> allergen Aww. transporting. And then we heard the woman who's fostering, who's fostering like 16 cats is like, I have a Russian blue. They're very, and it's true of 
of cats, they their coats are the least transmitting of allergens. But I don't know. I I don't like the cough I'm hearing from my daughter that oh, goes no. away when I give her allergy medicine. So yeah, kind of a bummer. Have you thought about hairless cats? Have you considered- hairless cats are not hypoallergenic? You're kidding. They also there was a whole conversation where for like a year. My seven-year-old daughter was like agitating for a sphinx. She was like, she was researching hairless cats, but actually hairless cats still have dander and still uh, bring allergens. I would not have guessed that. That's too bad. I know. They're supposed to be wonderful cats. They're supposed to have like the best personality. Supposed to be very sweet. Um, So I'm hoping, (sighs) I don't know. I feel like we've all learned and I feel like I've done my part because the allergist said to me, your son should not live with a cat. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But nobody would believe me until they experienced it. So we've experienced it now. That's funny. That's interesting. Cause I'll, I'll say this when I got diagnosed with ADHD, when I was like 40, um, I was talking to my husband about it and I was like, I wish that someone had diagnosed me earlier. I wish I had known this, but I have to admit that at no point in my life before this would I have accepted it as true. And um, I feel like that's kind of an ADHD trait and I'm not trying to ascribe traits to anyone in the Grants family, the Grants L family. I'm just saying sometimes we have to experience things for ourselves. It's hard. Nobody can tell Becca what's what. And maybe that's true for some other. There's a little bit of denial happening about the allergic reactions to the cat. Um, I also just want to share briefly the story that my daughter has a club at school called her Nature Spies Club. Nature where spies. They're, they're nature they, spies. Do they spy on behalf of nature? Yes, of course they do. Oh, yes. Of course they do. <laughs> and uh, there are these two older girls who they, I think they witnessed stealing a couple of the succulents from the school garden. <gasps> so Paz has made flyers, which we're not allowing her to post, which <laughs> she cut out the picture of one of these girls and just wrote crook on this flyer. <laughs> And today she, she needed her hair done in such a way that she'd be in disguise so she could spy on this girl. So she wore a disguise, which (laughs) in terms of it being something that might not draw attention to her so she could spy wasn't landing no just wasn't really landing but it was a great outfit I love that she didn't think to put like I thought you were going to say she put up missing flyers for the succulents like no, have you no. seen this cactus no she's but like no, have you no. seen this thief this thief. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. public 100%. shaming public, public shaming which is <laughs> I'm just witnessing these very interesting people who I live yeah. with yeah that's amazing so how are you doing and what are you drinking I am doing fine I'm wearing my Christmas gift, which is my heated puffer vest (laughs) because I had to turn off the heater because it makes a lot of background noise and it is like 27 degrees outside or something like that. So I need warmth. And luckily Santa brought me this uh, gorgeous, fashionable, chic, multi-setting, like it glows the little 
controller. Oh my god, that's amazing! That's amazing. Yeah, it's it's actually really effective. It's keeping me very warm, so I'm happy about that. And I'm drinking my Lagavulin 16. Ooh, Uh, you breaking out the good shit tonight? Oh, I mean, it's not the bad shit by any means, but it's more it's more and more become my regular shit. Let's put it that way. Damn, girl. Before we continue and move on to talking about Taylor Swift, uh, we should talk about some of the feedback that we got from listeners on our episode about Taylor Swift and Beyonce. Maya, take it away. So first of all, I would like to thank uh, Cronorin on our Discord channel for, after our episode, he finally went and listened to Renaissance, which he really liked, but he thinks that Perhaps she, Beyonce, really, really liked Janelle Monet's The Arcandroid. Oh. So the borrowing, processing, filtering mm-hmm. through the Beyonce body might have included Janelle Monet's entire album in which she is an alien superstar sex octopus. Right. Goddess. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that actually has mm-hmm. been done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kind of. And recently. Recently. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, we also have a really interesting conversation about Taylor Swift's two things about Taylor. One, that you are seeing that her political response and Miss Americana is pretty fantastic. And she's a very um, she's having her feminist reckoning in front of all of us. Uh, at mm. one point, she was in an interview and she said, yeah, men are strategic women are calculating. A man reacts, a woman overreacts. And there's this moment in in her documentary, Miss Americana, where she starts talking about feminism. She gets really heated and then she apologizes. And then she's like, why am I apologizing? She's like, am I speaking too loudly in my house that I bought (laughs) with the songs I wrote Mm. about my life? (laughs) <laughs> like she's having this very sort of public uh and so speaking against republicans coming from a country background um when she was being held up as a sort of aryan ideal uh right you know the sort of meaningfulness of that but also that maybe her all american football boyfriend might be a reaction from her previous public relationship with this kind of like dirt bag rock and roll Brit dude named Maddie Healy, who's kind of a like douchebag, I'm going to say shocking stuff kind of guy Mm. that she got a little pushback from. So I thought that was all interesting, all fodder for the conversation we're about to have. And here's one more thing that I have to share from a longtime listener who said that she feels like it might be interesting for us to think about the feminist capitalism of Beyonce and Taylor Swift in terms of prosperity gospel. Mm. Prosperity gospel being a mode of Christianity uh, in America where the idea is that if you pray, if you donate, you will have material goods come to you. That following Jesus is the way to certain kind and that Uh, As she noted, as we were talking about, neither feminism nor Christianity are essentially capitalist enterprises, but they've both been kind of 
absorbed into the capitalist apparatus. And she posited in that way that Beyonce, the goddess, is Catholicism. And Taylor, the every girl, is Protestantism. Which completely, I was like, <gasps> right, and I exploded, and, yeah. and then I've gone on. I spent the week reading this amazing book about the history of prosperity gospel, and we're clearly going to have to do an episode about it. That is not this, but very interesting to think about these things. Yes. These things continue to be very rich. So thank you to our listeners who had thoughts. Oh, one more thing, one more thing, because okay. I was at a dance. A workshop this weekend and it was like me the old lady and all of these youngs like dancers and <laughs> I mentioned that we just done this episode and everybody was like you talked about Taylor and Beyonce <laughs> and one of uh, my friends this younger dancer said that she got really into Taylor during COVID during the quarantine and she noted that even though Taylor is this total athlete in order to do the three-hour show, she talks about running on the treadmill while singing all of her songs so that she knew she could sing for three hours. She said, even though she's this total athlete of her voice, the songs themselves allow anybody to sing along with them. They're sort of talk sung. Her style of singing is a style of singing that is not about her vocal pyrotechnics. It's about writing songs that anybody can sing along to. So these are all feedback things that got tossed my way that I wanted to put in the bucket. All right. That's a uh, good fodder for our continued conversation that we're about to have. And uh, listeners, if you want to be part of the conversation, you absolutely can and should. If you come to our Patreon, patreon.com slash sauce podcast. And, and if you join at any level of membership, you can come on the Sauce Speakeasy, which is our Discord channel, where we talk about all this stuff and you can ask us questions or answer our questions, give us feedback, tell us what you want to hear us talk about next time, all that stuff. So again, it's patreon.com slash sauce podcast. And thank you to all our patrons who are already members and who make this show possible. Okay, we're going to get into the meat of our conversation here. We introduced Jenna at the beginning. Jenna, gave, you gave us a little background who you are, um, what you do, but let's talk about how you came to be on this show. <laughs> well, I was telling a family friend about the fact that we were about to do this episode, and he's like, I know a Swifty. <laughs> and I was like, would she talk about this? Could she like, would, and he's like, I don't know, but he went and asked and Jenna, you said yes. So it was through a friend who was like, I know who you need to talk to. <laughs> but you, you forget the interim step here, yes. which is that Jenna listened to our episode, our previous episode and wrote us an email. Yes. An oh, fuck yes, she did. fucking email <laughs> yes, where she went it. through all of Taylor Swift's of album, album by, by album. album. Oh yeah. And told us oh, which yeah. were the best songs and why, and uh, put it all into context. It was amazing. 
about and the differences, the the subtle differences between the songs everybody loves and the songs that Swifties in particular love, because right. the big hits that you know we think are the big bangers are not like those are kind of like mm, yeah. for a true Taylor Swift a fan. true fan. So Jenna, I would love if you would tell us a little bit about your credentials as a Swifty. I would love to. Um, so I did uh, spend a ridiculous amount of my own personal money to take myself, my mother, and my two best friends to the Eras Tour this year. So I am—I know that thousands of people went as well, but I think that that is a testament to um, going to see her. Um, I, my first live concert with her was her Reputation Tour. Um, prior to that, I was a military spouse moving around the country, so I could not afford um, concert tickets mm. at that stage in the game. Now, um, at this stage of my career, we've been, I've been in this spot for a long time. The Eras tour was within question, um, would not have been back when Taylor was doing her Speak Now or 1989 world tour. However, um, I have seen all of her shows live as well uh, on Netflix or on Apple TV, wherever they're streaming. Um, I came to be a Swifty in the Speak Now era that is when she really caught my attention. My best friend and I would play that album over and over um, after the whole incident with Kanye and Taylor and he had interrupted her on stage and everybody found out about it. And then Taylor soon after won album of the year as the youngest um, award winner ever for Fearless. And so I started paying attention. I had liked the songs. They were somewhat catchy. I'm not a huge country music person, but they can be earworms. And so after that, catching on with the Speak Now era and ta her talking about her writing sessions and how folks started to say after she won that award that she wasn't, there's no way that she was holding her own in those writing sessions. And there's no way that she could have been writing all herself. And so what Taylor did with Speak Now was release Speak Now all on her own. And she was the only writer on that. And she's done that. Um, she's stuck true to that for the re-records as well. One of those things to remember about Taylor, you know, as she... Um, I use calculated in uh, a positive light because I think it's awesome what she's done with her career. I think it's so smart. And I poo-poo at the fact that that's, that's a negative word because she's a, you know, she's an amazing career woman. So when the Speak Now album was released, that's when I really started to get into um, the dis discography and follow Taylor's career. And then from then on, just followed her very closely, really enjoyed the music and have become a full-on Swifty since then. So I have, I know every lyric, every catalog, it would probably take um, maybe two beats of a song and I could name the song for you. And I have my own theories as to what they're about. I tend to think that I'm right um, more so than a lot of the, the Swifty Instagrams. And, you know, my, my Instagram is just a full echo chamber of puppies and Taylor Swift, um, just because that's what I pay attention to if I'm going to log on to social media. So I think that that's Pretty much the resume of my qualifications when it comes to being a Swifty. I do have a lot of merch as well. Um, and then behind me, you can't probably see it from right here, but I have three framed picture frames and they have some of my favorite lyrics um, that sit in my office and folks like to ask me about it. And I, I smile and get to tell people I work with, well, I'm a huge Swifty and here we go. <laughs> so, Okay. So that's a wonderful summary. I, I do have to ask within that narrative, is there a point at which you went from being like, a fan like I like her music to being like no I'm a Swifty like was there a transition moment? was there like was there a song where you're like you know what this is <laughs> right. a, there is I have a or different, an album or yeah an that it was just like tour, yeah yeah that you could remember so the Speak Now album was that album for me um, okay her song Last Kiss is still to this day I think one of her most lyrically powerful songs she's done it is heartbreakingly sad 
And it got me through a very emotional breakup. My high school sweetheart and I were uh, six years together. And it's the way that she puts the emotion throughout the song. I'll watch your life in pictures like I used to watch you sleep. And I feel you forget me like I used to feel you breathe. And it's just one of the most beautiful and heartbreaking songs. And for her to write it, I believe she wrote it um, just before she turned 19. And it was released in 2010 with the album. But um, that allowed me to sit in that heartbreak. And so knowing that somebody else had felt that heartbreak was one of those where I, I said, okay, I'm on board. I want to know what else this person is going to tell me because those emotions, I was able to really work through my emotions. And if you can, you can get, you know, a young girl in a, in a breakup and get her to feel something as far as um, that somebody else is going through that type of pain that, you know, when we're at that age, I think that that's one of those beautiful things that that's what we look for in music. It's really interesting that you say that because it made me think of when I was a freshman in high school and a friend of mine, her boyfriend dumped her. It was not like a six year relationship, the you know, first love of her life, but she was the kind of girl who like, you know, was deeply in love with every boy she dated, I'm sure. And um, she was so, you know, upset deeply hurt by the whole thing. And I remembered another friend and I went over to comfort her and we we're in her bedroom and all she wanted to do was play the song. It must've been love, but it's over now by Roxette. <laughs> Such a great song, you know, <laughs> from the pretty woman soundtrack. Yeah. Um, and she literally just wanted to listen to it on repeat because it just spoke to her. So I'm not at all trying to belittle your relationship with, no, the, not at all. with the Taylor Swift song, but it, it is funny that that's, that's a very, strikes me as a very teen girl thing to hear a song about a breakup and feel like that really resonates. But how much more so, I guess, when it's a teenage girl who wrote and sang the song. I mean, that's like a whole other level of that. I can see that. It really speaks to as well. And I think that you just reminded me as we're talking about this, you know, teenage girls, um, wanting to listen to, and if you guys remember Brenda and Dylan from 90210, the original, not whatever mm -hmm. nonsense they remade. But when <laughs> Brenda was going through that breakup, all she did was sit in her bedroom and listen to Losing My Religion by R.E.M. on read. <laughs> and they came, Brandon came in and was like, what's going on? Are you okay? And she was like, no, this was Dylan and my, this was our first fight. And that just to really sit with your feelings, right? Because the same way we all go through trauma you go through anything is to really sit and accept those feelings rather than push them out to push through and so just sit well I think we're trained to push them out but I feel like when you're a teen and for me I mean my <laughs> it's not like I didn't have that it's just for me it was much more like dramatic and gothy because I for me it was like PJ Harvey for me it was right. like really extreme screaming howling you know, that was, that was kind of what I would listen to over and over again, because, because it's not just that you're doing it to work through the pain so that you can be on the other side of it. You're doing it because you just want to feel so intensely. Like there's that, there's that, um, the, I, I know I've mentioned this line before. There's that TV show, that animated show, Big Mouth. And when uh, Jessie gets her period and the hormone monstrous comes <laughs> and she says to her, throw yourself down on your bed and cry so hard, no sound comes out. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, yeah. I am seen. Like the ability to 
elevate your feelings. Cause I think that that's also part of girlhood and stepping into womanhood. Like you finally get to have all these feelings that you've heard about, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's a real like elevation of that. And those feelings aren't diminished um, because you're young, I think is also another. And because you're a woman. Right. Okay. I have a few more questions for you, Jenna. (laughs) Um, How would you characterize the role that Taylor Swift and her music currently play in your life? You kind of touched on this when you were talking about your credentials as a Swifty, but if your introduction to Taylor and your beginning of your love for her was this uh, teenage heartbreak and um, finding that relatable, has your relationship with her music changed and the role that it plays for you changed since then? I would say no. I'd say it's actually gotten stronger. Um, One of the ones that really resonates with me, and this is a little, this is a very personal story, but I'm, I'm an open book and willing to tell it. So she has this song on the Midnight's Extended Version called The Great War. And it is lyrically one of her most, she is um, aligning her relationship and her ups and downs in her relationship at the time with being at battle. And she says, you know, say a single, um, excuse me, say a single prayer, place a poppy in my hair. And she is going through, you know, where she, where the the battles like here, I've drawn my, my battle lines, uh, take the hairpin trigger out. And you're going through all the ebbs and flows of like a battle and a war and who's going to win. And you can tell in this instance that there's a lot of misunderstanding and miscommunication in the relationship. And as a person who um, I've been married for almost 12 years and in the beginning of our relationship, when this was such a great love that I hadn't experienced before, I did a lot of pushing away because I was not ready or expected that love to be, um, to be reciprocated or perhaps that from childhood trauma that I didn't deserve it or whatever it was. Um, so I did some pushing away. And so that song relates to me so well, because you can tell that like, she's wanting to just push him out the door and they're saying, Hey, throw, throw your banners down, take the battle underground. And there's all these different, it's this story that's told the whole way through. And it, I often think of that as the first like four months of my relationship with my now husband of me pushing a really great love away. And that's what she was doing as well. So finding bits Mm -hmm. of my personal life and relationship and how she deals with love um, because I think she's very open and honest and vulnerable about it. And so that I think is a really beautiful thing to make human beings understand how we all act and how we are about love because I can, I can hear that song and think, wow, she was really going through all the bits of emotion that you go through in a relationship like that. So I'd sure. say it's gotten even stronger. Would you say that that's the main appeal of her music for you is the relatability? I'd say it's half and half because I don't think, you know, when I saw her the Re- reputation tour before reputation, I would say she was relatable. And then when I saw her in a mega stadium tour, it became a take a step back. I can't reach out and touch Taylor anymore. She's far, ah, she's right. far beyond. She's elevated. She's, yeah. So yeah, we're yeah, not yeah. on that level that I thought we once were when we're sharing these stories. Right. Um, I would say the other equalness to it is the same way that, you know, why one of my best friends says this all the time. We watched the 1990s performance of Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham doing Silver Spring. And you watch her performing this song and she's looking directly at him singing you'll never escape the sound of the song of the woman that loves you and she is going like going in deep 
So you know that that's who this song's about, right? You know who Carly Simon's writing You're So Vain about. You, if There's a piece of us that when we know who the song's about, people want to pay attention. They're invested because it's a story about real life people. And the way that we mm -hmm. elevate celebrities into this pop culture status, now I'm in. I'm in. I want to know the story because she's telling the story of her life, essentially. And I'll I'll continue to read the chapters as they're released. I don't care how long it takes. So I'm also invested in the story long term. So that's really so. OK, so that's really interesting because you said that in the email and you said, you know, we're we're in it for the long haul. Um, and what you're saying is like we're in it for this grand autobiography that this woman is making about her life. So it's like almost like a real life uh, romance novel heroine that we're watching live her life, expressing her feelings in songs along the way. Like is how integrated is the tailorness of it in this? Because I wouldn't say that like, I love Stevie Nicks and the fact that she was, you know, getting Lindsay Buckingham to sing songs about what an asshole he was. <laughs> right. Just like, but it's but, like, it's like a little extra icing on the cake. It's not the cake itself. It's not the cake. And it's the same like with Joni Mitchell or even with Dolly Parton. It's like Dolly Parton, because when you're talking about what a great businesswoman Taylor is, I'm like, oh, Dolly Parton, like the, the businesswoman slash musician par excellence. But Dolly, it's like, Dolly was almost especially in her early career when she was singing a lot of what she would call sad ass songs, they wouldn't be about her. They were sort of about this whole world of women whose stories never got told. So even when they were personal or she would step into the character, it was a character she was stepping into. It wasn't about the dolliness of it. Right. She was just this sort of instrument. Or like, or like uh, Alanis <laughs> Morissette's You Oughta Know. Oh yeah. Great yeah, yeah. song. Interesting to note it's about Dave Coulier of all people. But like that actually does the opposite of enhancing your appreciation. Yeah, of the yeah. song. That makes yeah. it way dumber. Uh, You're like, oh uh, man. Oh really? god, For that Dave guy, Coulier? that guy. <laughs> um you went you went down on him in a theater. In a theater. Oh god. <laughs> really? Oh. Like Oh. have some self-respect Alana. yeah jesus but we can all relate i think that's a song that's all about relatability that people do not give a shit about dave coulier or the fact that he dumped her but everyone can or at least every woman can relate to that feeling of anger and uh resentment i i mean i guess jenny you sort of said it's kind of 50 50 is that what you meant it's like 50 50 being able to relate to the songs versus uh caring about Taylor and her story that she's telling through the songs and the and the autobiographical things that you kind of know like I know this song who's this song is probably about or whatever I think it depends on the album too because mm -hmm. there are musically I mean it's undeniable that folklore is musically sonically cohesive a beautiful album um what she's done what she did with music um as far as what she wanted to touch on bringing notes from the 90s, bringing in the Nationals, Aaron Dessner, to write with her. And just kind of, it was a new side of Taylor we saw. It's clearly about the music in an album like that. Versus when you're talking about the album like Lover, which I don't feel is musically one of her strongest albums. I think it's probably one of her weaker albums. Um, it's definitely like, it's all, you can read Joe Allen all throughout it. And it's all about her relationship at the time she's fallen in love. This is where she's going. And so, yes, there are catchy earworms and they're, 
you know, as a fan what, and as a Swifty, we're going to buy the album. We're going to listen to the album. We're going to, some of it's catchy. I run to a lot of it. Um, it's on my workout tape, but it's not what I'm invested for. If I'm going to put Taylor on repeat, it's going to be the folklore, the evermore, the midnights. Okay. But when you're listening to that, are you listening for the little, cause she drops these little sort of treats and, and images or, or little metaphors that she'll put in again for her longtime fans to pick up when you're listening are you listening to read the code no so I one of my favorite um songs that's quoted back here is she has she had a marvelous time ruining everything it's about it's called the last great American dynasty and it's actually a it's a song about holiday house which is her house in Watch Hill um that she purchased it sat um on the beach for 50 years before she purchased this house and I believe she purchased it in the I'd say early 2010s. I don't even know how to reference years anymore, post 2000. Um, <laughs> I know, and right? The song is about Rebecca Harkness. And Rebecca Harkness was the wife, she was a divorcee who married into Standard Oil. And everybody, the, the town very much scoffed at this relationship. How did this divorcee land it? And they were a party couple. And then he dies of a heart attack and leaves the fortune to her. And they have this house. This is the house that Taylor actually purchased. And she tells this story of this woman who spent her later days just giving up on that um, Rhode Island lifestyle and deciding she's going to do what the hell she wanted. So she would host Salvador Dali over at her house and she would have these wild parties and she um, filled the pool with champagne. And then she actually stole her neighbor's cat and dyed it green. She was a very rebellious nutty woman but she tells the story like this and you as you're listening to it and then taylor um after the bridge you hear that she actually purchased the house and then she kind of takes the spin on well this is everybody coming at me because the same way that they came at rebecca harkness she was this different woman this loud the loudest woman this town has ever seen and so she she spins it as i'm gonna do what the hell i want um mm -hmm. because it's my house and i'm gonna live this life in my house and so it's not about the easter egg she's le leaving in the within there it's about what a cool story and what a badass bitch to say, this is my house now. I'm going to do what I want and fuck all y'all, essentially. <laughs> so that that's that's one of those empowering songs. I just I listened to it while I was in the shower today and I was like, oh, it just makes me feel so good at the end because she said I had a marvelous time ruining everything. And it's just it's great to me. And so if you it, as a storyteller, because that's what you know, she's telling a story the same way Bob Dylan told stories and you're you're wanting to to hear the story the way through and you want to you want to feel um, some kind of way. That's why we listen to music in general. If we're not just like bopping around to dance, you want to feel some type of way. And that's one that makes me feel some type of way. Yeah, that that was sort of the other part of it that I was wondering with the relatability and then the story of Taylor's life her autobiography is told through it but then there's also just that the emotional engagement component would you say that those three are balanced in your enjoyment or one stands out one I would the say others? the emotional engagement stands out the biggest I am fully invested I'm an, I'm overly emotional and over I'm an empath and so <laughs> everything like I'm an empathetic crier I will just get involved very, very deeply when it comes to, especially music in particular. I've been this way since I was a little kid and I love pop music. So you actually, you have to like pop music if you want to get into Taylor. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but that happens to be one of my favorite genres. And so with that, um, with that, the emotional, the emotional level that she brings me to when I listen to her, that's, 
That's why I continue to listen. In response to your great email, and you also sent us a Spotify playlist, which was fantastic. And I, I've been listening to way more Taylor Swift than I ever listened to before, except for in the months running up to my nephew's bar mitzvah when I wanted to be like with it and know what the kids were listening to. Um, <laughs> but that was the 1989 era. And I was like reading some of the Wikipedia entries about the different albums to try to get some context. Okay. First of all, she apparently went to Nashville when she was like 11 looking for a record contract. And by the time she was 14, she had one and was working on that first album, the debut self-titled album at that age and released it when she was like, what, 16? Mm -hmm. She was a child. Um, And then while she's promoting that album, she's writing her next one. And while she's touring of that second album, she's writing the third one. And then I'm reading about like the fourth album and how um, it's about her romances or the media's response to her romances or all this different stuff. And I'm like, when did this young woman have time to have a fucking romantic relationship? How, how is that possible? This makes no sense to me that she has time to have any of the like love and heartbreak, any of the things that she's actually singing about. I know you don't know the answer to this, but I'd love to hear your take as a Swifty. Oh, I absolutely know the answer. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, well, I think I think part of it is what what would take you or I to do something like this, to do something as remarkable as Taylor has done, and to have the you know the writing capabilities would probably take some a bit of time. You know, there's certain albums from many artists that they talk about how long um, they get take they take to be to be written, and she said um, herself that you know all too well is a song that took her forever to write because she kept putting it down because she was so sad um, because that was her first, what she describes as one of her first like true, true heartbreaks. Um, the same thing with Blank Space. She, you know, it was piece by piece and she had just compiled a bunch of little like quotes that she had written down in her voice notes because that's generally how she writes. She'll just do a voice memo or a voice note um, and keep it to herself or, or send it back and forth with whoever she's writing and collaborating with. Um, whereas for ma- the majority of her songwriting process, it's very well known that it takes Taylor anywhere from five to 10 minutes to write a song. Um, and she immediately, like Aaron Dessner said that she wrote Willow, which was the first um, release off of her Evermore album un- in under 10 minutes. He had sent her a couple of the strums and she sent him back the full song written back. So as far as that, I think it's just that child prodigy um, that she is she continues to do because songwriting and writing those hooks it's the same way that Michael Jackson um I would say Taylor even sur- surpasses Michael Jackson but the same way that if you would um ever have, have ever listened to any of his um writing or song making sessions and he'll just throw the beat off um and I'm not even going to attempt uh, a half-assed Michael Jackson impression but he'll throw the beat and then he'll say no I want it to sound like this and get the beat going and then you all of a sudden just hear him putting his lyrics on there and you're like what what just happened? Is there that's a mm. song now? And I think that that's very much just um, Taylor's way of songwriting. You have songwriters who you know sit with it for a long time, like um, Noel Kahn or or Dermot Kennedy or even Ed Sheeran, who aren't nearly as fast and as quick with that. But I think these melodies they just live in her head because she's just kind of an unhinged, crazy songwriting person. It's interesting. There was. Um... I've been slightly low-key obsessed with this documentary that's been on about the Bee Gees, who I did not understand wrote 
so many songs that I know and I didn't realize that they wrote them because I only know the covers of them. Um, oh. And I, it's a really great documentary and they're interviewing all of these different songwriters and uh, the dude from Coldplay, who I am not a fan of, but he's like, look, the surfers don't make the wave. The fishermen don't make the fish. You sort of catch it or you don't. Like there's this music going around all the time. And some people just have, because the Bee Gees also wrote very quickly. They would go in with just hmm. some small idea. There's this great story where Barry Gibb, they were, when they were living in Miami and they would have to go over this bridge every day and the like the the sound of the wheels on the bridge to turn to turn to turn to turn like turned into a song that day and that they they're just people who who's um did you did you both watch the Beatles documentary get back yes I watched uh on the yeah yeah Jenny, did you didn't watch it? I did not. Uh, this is going to be like a slight spoiler uh, for anyone who hasn't watched it, but there's an amazing moment in it where Paul McCartney sits down because they need, the whole thing is following their writing and recording of Let It Be, the album, their second to last album. And um, they need songs because there's like a time limit on it because they want to do it as a TV special. And so they're like, shit, we have to write songs. So Paul McCartney sits down with his guitar and just starts strumming. And he's strumming different stuff and he's strumming different stuff. And within seconds, he's he's playing Get Back. Like, it just turns into Get Back. And you're like, holy shit, I just watched him write Get Back. And like, the lyrics take a while to come together. But it's always fascinating to see people's creative processes and the ways that they can be like labored and difficult. And I'm always comforted by the ones that are labored and difficult because it's like, yes, this took 20 rewrites. You had to just keep reworking it. The thing you had at the beginning was nothing like what you ended up with at the end. That makes me feel better. Whereas when people are like, oh yeah, she wrote that song in five minutes. I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> oh, but also fair. I think there is this um, in Nashville, especially the more that I learn about like there are certain country musicians who I listen to, there are a lot of songwriting circles it's like, we're going to get together. We're going to write a couple of songs. Not all of them are going to stick. And some of them might be mm. kind of meh, but like, I think there is in the sort of Nashville culture and the songwriters circle culture, there is this kind of like, we're just always writing songs, always writing songs, always writing songs. And like, you see it with um, Miranda Lambert, who I mentioned last time, or when she does an album with, uh, with, the pistol annies where it's just like we're going to get together for two weeks we're going to write some songs and so i feel like there's a way that it's a little less um it doesn't seem as tortured there seems to be a very like community ethic ethos always writing songs and because the songs are a guy and a guitar and certain genre expectations right there's a structure in place there's a structure that you're always iterating if i can be honest if I can be completely honest Taylor's songs aren't the most structurally complex yeah it's the ones that I've heard and I have not heard all of them but a lot of them seem to be not that structurally complex so I can see how they might not take that long to just write the lyrics at least but there's more to a song than just writing lyrics I understand that there are the songs there's her there's this pleasure that you get from the songs themselves, um, I think what my friend said about them being songs that you can sing along to really struck me, the kind of emotional permission that they give. 
And then there's this other side of it, which is the community. Rebecca wrote it as, do you feel like being a Taylor Swift fan makes you part of something bigger, both in terms of a fandom community, but also this kind of larger project of supporting her career? I will say in, in 2016, when she had the the public um, head swayed, right? Because we, we can only tolerate a successful woman for so long before we have to yeah. kind of say we're done. Um, yeah. so I think that, she's in danger right now, actually. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Overexposure. Yeah, for... She had a couple scandals over Christmas. Um, but that being said, back to your original question, I think that when everybody turned against her in 2016, I was like, I, I knew that that wasn't true. I stayed true to the, being a fan because I've always liked the music. I was like, I'm going to this reputation tour because I have money to do it now. And I want to see this woman live. Um, I think it's just more validating with how popular she was because I've loved her that much from the beginning. So for those of us who have been around for a long time, there's a sense of validation. But as far as being a part of the community, I will tell you when I was sitting at the Eras Tour con concert and I'm singing and I'm showing my mom because my mom's the one who got me into music. You know, she had me on a kid leash um to to Chicago Blues Fest so she wouldn't lose me and she could still have her drinks and everything and she she's just an awesome person but we talk music all the time and I was like she used to give me so much shit about Taylor Swift and I'm like mom I'm telling you go to the show she went to the show she now listens to the music she's like all right Aww. I'll give it to you <laughs> that's nice and she's like a rock blues person all the way she's not a pop music fan but she does like herself some Taylor now so sitting here at this show and we've got these girls behind us who are screaming bloody murder these lyrics like I thought that they were all going to have a heart attack but I could do nothing but laugh like it was slightly annoying because I couldn't hear and I was going deaf but I think watching people that kind of sheer joy there's so little things that bring human beings that level of euphoria naturally um, so I was like, just let it go. They're having a great time. And like being able to do that and have like that level of joy and concerts in general, you have just all the same people, the same thing with sporting events, everybody just amped on something. Right. I get that level, but I, I will say, I don't think that the community, when I see like people gathering outside of a friend's wedding to take pictures of Taylor gathering outside of her, her home, I just generally feel bad. And I wish they'd all go just calm down a little bit because the woman just, is also a human being. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that I, I'm all about the Swifty community. I, I just really appreciate the, the music for myself and getting other people to like the music because it's something, if I find joy in something, I'm like, I promise you'll like this. Just listen to the lyrics. Which brings us to something you wrote in that email that you sent us, where you said there's a lot of critique within the fandom, some valid, some nonsense, but the fandom will brainstorm ad nauseum. Let us in. <laughs> what are these Tell critiques us in the Swifty community? Like, what because do Swifties argue about? This was in the context of on our previous episode, we were saying how we couldn't find a Swifty to come on because everyone who knows a Swifty said that they would not be able to tolerate criticism of Taylor. You're saying that's not true, that Swifties have a lot of critiques within the fandom. Okay, explain to us what that means. Yes, please. Please be as specific as you can. Yes. yes. Yeah. I want the specific. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the release of Lover, right? She gets, she turns from reputation to now it's light and butterflies and everything. And she does this massive music video and she's got, she brings in Panic at the Disco and we're going to do this big thing. And it's all about the commercialization and it's all about this pop hook. And it's not about any of the 
great songs on Lover. It's not about Cornelia Street or Miss Americana or even, you know, The Archer. I mean, there's there's so many other songs she could have chosen. Um, and then everybody's favorite, Cruel Summer, as her release to really let the music shine through. But she chose me the same way that Justin Timberlake was getting his, you know, um, Can't Stop the Feeling, Trolls, number one rate. She went for the number one. She didn't go for what was strong musically. And I think that's why we got to see an album like Folklore after that, realizing maybe she didn't want to do that anymore because the fans didn't love it. Because she actively says that do she does listen. Do you think that she's like, so she listens to the fans, you feel like she's like her music is in conversation with the fans. It does seem like her music is in conversation with the, with the world where she's like, oh, if they're going to say that I don't write my own songs, I'm going to write a whole album of my own songs. It if- definitely seems to be in conversation with her critics. 100%. Yes. They call it they call it tail lurking. And I'm <laughs> tail lurking. So, tail lurking is when you can see when Taylor's been active on Tumblr if she's liking something or responding to something with the fans, they're paying attention and then somebody in the Swiftyverse will set off that oh, Taylor's online on Tumblr today. This she was active for this. And so they'll get into a group and say, "Hey, we really want Taylor to see this." And so the, they work in like this crazy mindless cult at times. I'm not huge into doing anything online at this level. It scares mm. the shit out of me. But this is very much what they're into. And she sees it. And she'll even acknowledge and say, I, I understand that we didn't like this. I, I know you guys think I hate my album Evermore because I didn't promote it that much. But I do actually love this album. Because that's also one of my favorite albums. And I thought it did not get nearly as much release as it should have because I think musically and lyrically it's one of her stronger albums i think it's an amazing album and it she just like released it and then she was done with it um and so the swifties are still pissed about it to this day and give her tons of shit about it they're like oh evermore your forgotten album thanks so much and they'll do all these memes about this like dead forgotten album um so and i know she pays attention because she'll she'll reference it if she's online making comments wow okay so the so the swifties have gotten critical of her for playing number one big hits rather than her more musically, in mm-hmm. their opinion, worthwhile songs. They've gotten angry at her for not promoting Nevermore enough. They've gotten angry with her for dating a big douchebag who's like tries to be a provocateur on drinking wine on stage. And oh, was that did that Nazis. was that controversial among the Swifties? Very much so. As soon as yeah. it came out that they were dating, they slammed it. And I guarantee she said she came out with a statement saying, like, I'm a grown woman. She came out with a statement through that gossip site Dumois, who follows pop culture. And so she like made sure somebody in her circle was okayed to to give this information to Dumois, I assume, because that's how things work like that, I'm assuming, I guess. But it was that, don't worry about her, she's a grown woman, she can date whoever she wants, was the statement. And then like that same week, Maddie Healy was like, no, nowhere to be found. And so it was like, well, you don't care, but you actually do, because they were not going to stand for that. They were like, this is disgusting. Absolutely not. It was an immediate critique. And I would say 90% of the fandom said, absolutely not. This is disgusting. We won't forgive you for this. That's interesting to me because that strikes me as being contrary to the spirit of Taylor's music and her messaging, right? And I have to say that suspiciously quickly after dumping Maddie Healy, this all-American football player happened in her life. 
Oh, you know what I mean? You're, you're getting into she's only doing it for the publicity. Is that what this I'm just is? saying? I think it's interesting that she was like <laughs> dating this very sort of trying to be a bad, bad boy. Her fans hated it. And all of a sudden. So Maddie and Taylor first dated um, in the 1989 era. She had gone to the 1975 concert. She had worn his, his um, uniform. And based on the, the lyrics of the music at the time, I ascertained that Maddie um, was kind of the person that she slept with to try and get over Harry Styles before they came back together. And so when they came back together, he's like, you've been with this person. She was like, well, you've been with Kendall Jenner. And they tried to make it work again because Harry's music also lyrically talks about them being two ghosts and not who they were when they first started dating um, because they came back months later. And so when they decide that it's just not going to work anymore, we're not the same person. I believe that Maddie Healy was the story. She had always had a thing for him, kind of that rocker bad boy-esque. And also, according to some sources, he's supposed to be a real gentleman toward her. So as much as he was a piece of shit uh, in the public eye and what comes out- I also think his whole piece of shit performance when 1975 is essentially a fucking pop band. Like, you're not going to make me think any different. He plays like he's a bad boy in a giant stadium. Right. Isn't he a Nepo baby too? Like, I think so. I think so. So I, I agree. I think it's all, it's all for shock factor and it's, it has no value to it whatsoever. But I think that she genuinely did really like him. There's also some references that him as a musician, perhaps that was, you know, just the antithesis of who, of her long six year relationship or saying that she was getting over it much quicker. Who knows really um, what, what the dynamic was there, but I really genuinely do think that she liked the guy at the time and then realized, okay, we'll let you be yourself and and sing your songs, but your fans aren't going to stand by you if you're going to be, with somebody who's capable of that kind of nonsense and who says shit like that. So timing of the Ice Spice collaboration, uh, not your best look, Taylor. The song's okay, but I, it, it all looked very planned and played. That's not a part of it. And I I'm- mean, there's also this whole thing about how people know, like Taylor Swift fans know who her publicist is. Publicists usually sort of like, are not very no, they're supposed to be invisible invisible to the that's and the nature of their and there's job. a whole article where like when things come out people i don't even know the publicist's name but people will be like oh tree like pain. they wreck tree pain okay there you go where they'll recognize her at a concert where she's part of this constellation of taylor world of taylorverse mm-hmm. that her fans actually know about so it's not just that they're interacting with her music and how her music is there in her personal life there's this real interaction of her fandom with her as this character. It's, it's fascinating. But I think that's part of the appeal. It's her, the perception, at least of her earnestness in her lyrics uh, and, and in her public presence that, that like her lyrics contain this level of open honesty and earnestness that makes people feel like they are getting a peek into her and this makes you feel more connected to her as and yet then at the same time everybody's incredibly invested in the construction of her the construction of herself like Mm. the songs are earnest but everybody's really involved in how she is 
how the character is built and played out in the public eye. It's really interesting. You know, and she also, she went underground with this relationship prior to the one she's in right now. You know, she's there for six years. We don't really know a ton about it. Her albums, Folklore and Evermore, are released as Oh, this whimsical, you're in a forest and the, it's tales of folklore. And it's not, it's the first time I wasn't autobiographical, but now listening to it and going back through it, um, post breakup, post timing, you understand that actually both of those albums were very much written about her. So it is, it's, it's interesting in the, in the way she goes about it. I think the, the public attention around this very famous athlete, um, everybody wants to, to hear what's going to be written about it right because right, the more right. passionately let's, let's get the songs going yeah. right because the more passionately anybody feels about anything the better the songs are going to be so if this is like the end all be all relationship we're hoping for some some fire albums here and so everybody's really invested myself i am very invested i want to hear like the love songs that's i'm all about a love song i guess so but happiness happy relationships it's like uh, the first line of anna karenina right Every happy family is alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy after its own fashion. It's sort of like every happy relationship is like, what is there to write about? I love you. It's so great. It's also like, you know, what's going to happen, you know, if she ever like gets married and has kids and is a boring mom. I mean, the songs change. Let me tell you. (laughs) Um, You know, that's not true in the sense like your art has not gotten less interesting as you become. No, no, no. It's gotten more interesting. It it has gotten more interesting uh, and a lot darker, but I feel like (laughs) uh, and a lot crazier, actually a lot crazier. But in terms of the genre in which she's working, Mm. when your life stops being about just to be crude and just thinking about myself as a young woman, Mm -hmm. when your life stops being about who's the new guy I'm fucking and it starts being about this sort of like, I'm just fucking this one person. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's just different. It's just a different life. Look, I would be interested to hear what Taylor would write after becoming a mom, because of all the songs that Jenna recommended and that I listened to, the one that struck me the most was Ronan. The song that was written about Maya Thompson's blog about her young son who died from cancer. So this was not autobiographical at all. This was a person's blog. She wrote about this terrible experience and Taylor very tenderly and sensitively turned it into a lovely song. And I have to say, I don't want to be harsh on Taylor because I respect her and what she does. I find a a lot of Taylor's songs, a lot of them are about romance or about stop criticizing me. (laughs) Like those are the two themes. They're like, I had a bad breakup. I had a good breakup. I'm mad at this guy. Like I love this guy or you can't tell me what to do. Don't call me a slut. I'm tired of your criticisms. Like those were the two big themes, except for that song, which was like a standout because it was about something completely different. And it Mm. occurs to me that this woman has been doing this and has been famous for it since she was like 15. Yeah. Like she has not had a life. Like she has not had life experience of a normal person, of a typical person. 
Right. Um, which is why the folklore album started to kind of strike me as like, oh, it was pandemic and she had time and like sat down and read books for the first time. Right. Like she started read books, watched movies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, listen to some got and out it of fed the- her imagination, which is great. But it, but it also made me kind of go, oh, yeah, actually, she hasn't had a typical experience of life for most of her life. And it's going to give you a limited source material to draw upon for your yes. songwriting. Yes. So Ronan being a song where, you know, it was about something other than a relationship. I will say that I think um, two two quick points on her red album when you know this album is so all over the place and many talk about it as her best album ever and i'm not exactly sure about that but i'm not a music critic but there's a lot of different themes and vibes about what she's feeling throughout this album about you know the lucky one where she's singing about somebody who gets out of hollywood and eventually doesn't doesn't do hollywood anymore and she just has like a little rose garden and she's not involved with the hollywood life anymore and so there's also a reference to this um, in her Midnight's album uh, in the song You're on Your Own, Kid, where she says, I didn't choose this town. I dream of getting out um, because, you know, she did grow up in Wild Missing, Pennsylvania on a Christmas tree farm. And she did, you know, there was that Nashville to get famous because she's really talented at what she does and what she loves to do is her songwriting. But I do think that there's a person there who just actually does want to have a family, be a mom, be away from that, the Hollywood lifestyle. I don't know if she'll ever be able to do it because I do think it's very clear that she is very much addicted to being Taylor Swift. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think, you know, that's going to be a struggle for her personally. She might go off the radar for years and come back with an album. Or there's a an article like 10 years ago where she talks about like writing for other people would be a dream, like under anonymity. But I, I'm not really sure because there's a bit of Taylor and it's very clear from the way she acts that she does love a bit of the spotlight but there are several songs on red where it's about being young being confused then i would say that like a lot of her songs yes are about relationships but find me a musician who isn't like and 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 pop music generally is is almost all about love in some way shape or form but also i think again it's really interesting where if she was in love with this guy or she had some hot thing with this guy and her fans are like, absolutely not. And so she breaks up with the guy and starts dating the exact opposite of what's being criticized. Is that not fishy to you? Does that not read to you? Like, like <laughs> Maya's baiting you. <laughs> no, I'm asking, I'm asking very sincerely. I'm not baiting you. I'm okay, asking okay. very no. sincerely. I think it's a, it's a fair question and it's a fair, cause it raises a flag, right? We're no, we're not idiots and people know that we're not idiots. I will just say from my perspective, being that I was young, dumb and in love on numerous occasions, if my friends were all telling me, don't date this douchebag. We're all pissed at you. And to go do something the opposite, I would have done it at the time. Uh, So my personal- But she's 35, you know, 34. I think that I'm actually, you know, to be that age and to be able to make those mistakes versus like to continue making it. I'm like, I'm an old married woman now. So (laughs) I'm not making those mistakes anymore. But I've noticed like my my close girlfriends here, many of them are single and they're in their mid thirties. I'm 36, almost 37. And they are 
going on these dates and doing this wild behavior of stuff that I like can't even imagine these days because I, I did not date in the in the realm of dating apps. So this is it's just it's mind boggling to me. Right. But it's also I think if you are able to do it with the intelligence that you have in your 30s versus the stupidity that you had in your 20s, that's also something to be envied. And I think perhaps better luck to them now. Um, and, you know, Taylor being that, you know, she's a billionaire with her 10 houses and her <laughs> a private jet and able to go do things that Taylor Swift does. I'm like, have at it, girl. Like, date 20 men before it. Like, don't settle on this one. Keep it going. Um, yeah. But like, how much is that conversation like what Maya was asking about how it seems kind of suspicious that uh, she would be dating this uh, perfect opposite of what her fans objected to. Like, is that a conversation among the fans? Is that allowed? Are they allowed to say, like, we think this is uh, set up by her publicist? Yeah, that was is that's not the I, OK. There's two part two parts to this. And this is an interesting conversation because it's actually from the way Taylor writes and the way Taylor's fans believe in her we don't think she'd do a publicity relationship. Okay, She's not the one for that. That being said, are Swifties very skeptical that Travis Kelsey is not doing this at some point for the fame? Because years ago, <laughs> Travis Kelsey had said, like his publicist, his management, we want to make this guy as big as The Rock. And he, you know, he hits on her. And then all of a sudden, this secret feud between Aaron Rodgers, who is a known massive Swiftie, also friends with uh kelly teller and miles teller they go to the concert together i think aaron Rodgers might have been trying to get in there and get a date going ended up going with travis kelsey based on some other people who set them up but his how he talks about her on the podcast how he's so open about it and like these displays of affection are very romantic especially like through taylor's music you can tell that she wants those gestures she doesn't want to hide in a cottage in london somewhere with someone for six years again she wants to be out in the open with it is he there for all the right reasons that we're not sure of there's some critique here we want her to be happy but also is this real so we don't critique her motivations but we can critique his yes or question his at least yes we're, the the swifties will always flip the script we are going to 100 <laughs> center it on the man and is it his fault <laughs> It's whatever happens, it's his fault. That's one hundred percent. You know, but I kind of love. I mean, that's but that's something about her and her fandom that I love is not turning on her because that's something that I think we see in in culture where it's always the woman's fault. It's never the man's. It's like mm. it's nice to see somebody who's going to be so like, yep she's there for the real reason he might be there as a publicity stunt i think i appreciate that i saw this one clip of her at her concert being like just writing songs teaching men how to apologize <laughs> <laughs> like just in three minutes this is how you can apologize just teaching men how to do it i mean there is a real uh feminist entitlement where it is going to be the other way uh, from how it usually is that mm -hmm. seems to be in there. Yeah. That's kind of her charm that she's able to do that artists with not the same level of power or playing field in the music industry, the same thing when she wrote the Apple music letter, 
and said, hey, unless you pay these songwriters during the free trial period, I'm withholding my music. Nobody else could have done that and gotten those artists paid because nobody else had the type of clout that Taylor did in the music industry. So for her to also be able to say at this point in the game with her career, as you mentioned earlier, Maya, hey, it's it's not uh, calculated. It's um, strategic. strategic, right. And so that kind of thing, calling that out and being able to put that in your face feminism, not all artists can do that. To have that type of voice, that type of platform, it even reminded me at the um, the Golden Globes, right? Joe Coy made that cheeky remark about NFL um, screen time with Taylor, and she just quietly, like you could tell, she wasn't impressed by the joke, took some shit, sips <laughs> of her champagne. However, when Ryan Gosling, they cut to him after the shitty joke about the Barbie movie, that Barbie was a movie about big boobs, which was an awful joke about such an awesome movie, and... Ryan Gosling's face was just very unimpressed, more of a visible reaction, but men can react, women only overreact. That's right. That's yep. That type of thing. And even her just sipping her champagne without a reaction is an overreaction. Right. Yeah. So one thing that somebody said to me when I was talking to these, these intensely passionate Taylor Swift fans, one of them was not such a fan. Um, even though she's not yucking anybody's yum. And this is and in your in your dance in class? This, this group of dancers, these young dancers, mm-hmm. these women in their early 20s, um, you know, like the youngs. Um, yeah. But one of them, we were talking about it and she said, God, she's still writing songs about men who just treated her badly and she had bad relationships with, like, she's in her 30s. Hasn't she learned anything? Which <laughs> I thought was so... <laughs> But I feel like uh, one of the questions I have is that right now she is in this relationship. People are talking about her constantly. She had this monster year. Yes. I feel like the backlash is coming. What do you think would be her next move? She had this private relationship. She's kind of like, fuck that. I want a big public relationship where it's a big deal and big and fabulous and shiny. And you can see that people are revving up their engines to hate her. Like, like it's not even, they don't even have to rev up their engines that much. There are all of these NFL douches who are like, like, how dare she exist? What do you think is going to be her next move is what I'm saying. Mm. I think she's going to continue to do what she's doing with this, you know, the publicity. She's not, not going to any of Travis's games. She's even at the sub-zero ones this last weekend in Kansas City. And I think we're probably within the next year, if it hasn't happened already, we're going to see an engagement and she's going to continue on that leg of her tour. And I think she's just in, I don't give a fuck mode. And I think she's really hoping that her fans are going to see through that attempted takedown that we get as she probably is no doubt going to be speaking out about the next election Um, We all know that Taylor is a liberal Democrat. Um, We're up against quite the election this year. So I think that there's going to be that. I think Fox News is going to say a lot of crazy shit about Taylor besides her working for the Pentagon or whatever else on top of all the other things that she's got to do. Apparently she has time for this. Uh, Wouldn't put it past her. The woman's a genius. So I hope she is. Is that actually a Fox News theory? I'm sorry. Have I missed something? 100%. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Elaborate. She is a psyop for the Biden administration right now um, to encourage young voters 
to come vote. So obviously that they're they're hoping as a last stitch effort, they're utilizing Taylor Swift. That's one so they're that like paying her mm-hmm. the Biden administration to pretend to care about and it it, it couldn't be it couldn't be maybe, that she just has an opinion about politics. Well, but it also with. couldn't be that maybe a lot of women are pissed because their reproductive rights are being taken away. <laughs> It's a psyop. It's a psyop. They're being mind controlled by Taylor Swift. It couldn't be that they're like, ah, they're coming for my birth control next. You know, women are miscarrying, women are going septic in parking lots. Couldn't possibly be that. No, this is possibly be that. This is apparently this has been done years ago that the the Pentagon's their psychological operations unit floated turning Taylor Swift into an asset for their team. So that they had pitched that to um, pitch NATO on turning Taylor Swift for combating misinformation online. There, it was this whole huge. I'm not anything to make women just seem stupid, or that we're not wow. capable. No, but making opinion. women. That's the thing that it's not women being. Stu- it's like in mass culture, it's this idea that women are by nature untrustworthy. And it's back to this idea of strategic versus calculated, that that, that women are just right. that not to be trusted. That what she's doing has to be calculated. The only reason she would be dating a football player is because she wants the attention. And the only reason she'd be talking about politics is because she's, she's being a psyop. paid. Because she's, she's a, being like, she's, it, she's, it's, it's all a scheme. There's something behind it, which is so funny because it's the opposite of what her appeal seems to be to her fans well no but it also sets up the giant culture war that women's power is dangerous i mean and that uh, yes girls power is obviously yes. psyop is a dangerous it's a, psyop. it's a civilization ending power women's joy is a civilization ending power. no it is and i mean we cannot ignore the fact that if she were a psyop, if she were being paid by the CIA or whatever the fuck, who would she be aiming her message at? Who is right. the government, the deep state, trying to target? It's young women and girls. And, and, and there's something folded in there about the perception that that is a malleable, malleable group, that, that that is a group who are yes. naive. Yes. Like Jenna said, like they're just not smart enough. They're manipulable. And so the the deep state, the Biden administration, same difference, uh, are capitalizing on that reality because it couldn't possibly be, like you said, that like young women are actually like, oh, shit, I don't want to be forced to give birth against my will. Well, it's also interesting because again, everything in, in, we're going to be seeing this a lot this year. I'm telling you, (laughs) this really is setting us up for 2024. A lot this year is that the criticism is always projection because at the same time that, that I guess Taylor Swift is a psyop, you have Andrew Tate in Romania or whatever, who Vice Magazine just uh, published this amazing article about all of these young boys who he's absolutely exploiting and manipulating into doing work for free and editing video for him and joining this like monthly subscription because you'll be a big douchebag like me if you do this and like targeting young men into this, the sort of like rabbit holes of radical right activity that happen on YouTube that target young men. 
they think that that's what Taylor is doing. Because that's what they're doing. Because that's what they're doing. It's also the (laughs) giant evil power of having your feelings, having and expressing your feelings, feeling feelings. This, This is where I think Taylor's real power is as a cultural phenomenon. She is about having feelings. And I will accept what you said, Jenna, about there is more variety and uh, nuance and there are different topics. It's not just about like this guy dumped me. I 100% believe you on this. But even if it were just like, I feel sad this guy dumped me. Even if it were just that, the fact that that gets put on this gigantic stage and changes the fucking economy with how much money it generates yeah like that's a certain power and it's like fuck you our feelings matter they are real and you know what it's okay like the 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 toxic masculinity model is not the only model of what is power and what is worthwhile in our society it's like fuck you our feelings matter is that is a and actually at my at the dance thing that I was at this weekend, we were there doing this really deep somatic work. And afterwards, people are going around the circle talking about it. And I was like, I just want to remind you all that this is really radically political to be here, <laughs> elevating the somatic, the empathic, the intelligence of the body, the way that we are relating it to understanding how our world is working. Like mm. this, just, just remind you, this is very radically powerful work. It is, it is. Yeah. Th- saying that young women's, young girls' feelings matter in this moment that we're in, that is a big thing to say. People don't want to believe that right now. Are you calling Taylor Swift radical? Oh shit. I don't know. 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 I'm going to sit with that for a minute. Well, Jenna, thank you so much for coming on and diving into this with us and sharing it so openly and honestly. We loved it. Thank you both for having me. This has been great. I enjoyed the discourse and happy to follow up with any questions via email or uh, whatever your listeners if they have some additional concerns but just want to reiterate we as the Swifties we can take the criticism we understand she's not a perfect human being but by by God we love her music (laughs) special thanks to Alex Fish for yenting that connection to jenna we really appreciate it thank you again to jenna for joining us maya would you say that your opinion of taylor swift has changed at all through these conversations i think my opinion of the precision of the power that she wields Mm. has changed the music is still not turning me around like, yeah. I'm still not going to be a Swifty. And I still don't think that she is Bob Dylan or Dolly Parton or Joni Mitchell. I don't. But I feel like in terms of the army that she's built, <laughs> uh, I think I have a lot of respect for it. All right, listeners, we are dying to hear what is your favorite Taylor Swift album? 
<laughs> and I know you're thinking, oh, you guys are doing two episodes on Taylor Swift. What about Israel and more important things? And the world is on fire. And well, to listeners, be fair, we did two episodes on Israel. We well. did. Um, but also, there are many really amazing episodes that we have plans that are coming up. It is a crazy year. There are crazy things happening right now. So we are going to dive into a lot of these topics. Do we want to preview them or do you no. want to let it be? Okay, no, you but guys. Listeners, we do want to hear from you because as we're starting to plan these and reach out to guests and put together, we don't want your hot needs to go unmet. So if you are Just having like some- Taylor Swift, we are responsive to. Yes. We listen to. If you want me to leave my family because they are just not, you know, what I should yeah. be doing, I completely exactly. understand. Exactly. Even though we are all allergic, should I keep this cat? I yeah. will, I'll do yeah. it and tell me. I will seriously <laughs> consider what the, what our saucies have to say. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but we are in an insane moment where many insanely incomprehensible things are going down all over the place politically and culturally. So and we, it's just going to get worse. Like, it's only <laughs> getting worse. So we are here to talk about it all and, uh, and to find the smarter experts when we cannot talk about yes. it. So reach out to us and tell us your thoughts on this episode or what else you'd like to hear from us or your thoughts on past episodes, what the fuck's going on in the world, whatever you want to talk about. We can be reached by email. We are saucepodcast at gmail.com. We are at Sauce Podcast on all of the socials, but also join our Patreon, patreon.com slash saucepodcast. And if you want to reach me directly, I am at Gynostar on all the various platforms. And I'm at Maya Garantz anywhere you're looking for Maya Garantz's. We look forward to hearing from you. Adios, amigos. <laughs>